For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi. Welcome to Unveiling Jesus Christ and another podcast dealing with the Come Follow Me curriculum. This week we'll be talking about uh, Revelation chapters 6 through 11. There's a lot of material to cover, but before we get into it, I wanted to share an experience that I had while I was in the mission field. The reason I'm sharing this is actually because this week uh, my wife Jan showed me an excerpt of a talk that was given by Elder David A. Bednar about an experience he had as a young missionary serving in Germany. We were sort of next-door neighbors. But uh, in his experience, he talks about a meeting he had with Elder Boyd K. Packer, who was then serving as the junior member in the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. And uh, Elder Packer was en route to East Germany, and uh, Elder Bednar was assisting him and making arrangements for he and his wife. And as uh, they were having troubles with some of the flights because of the weather, it turned out they had to take a train. And uh, as uh, Elder Packer and his wife were getting ready to go on the train, Elder Bednar gave him a 20-mark note just in case he wanted to buy any snacks or anything on the train going into East Germany. And it turns out that Elder Packer used that 20-mark note to bribe the East German Border Patrol so that he could get his wife into uh, East Germany. And it was quite a story uh, and pretty faith-promoting because Elder Bednar then talks about learning about what happened after that. That's all that Elder Bednar knew was that he gave him a 20-mark note, but he later learned years later what had happened and the use of that note in uh, bribing the guards going into East Germany. And the punchline of the uh, account, and I'm, I'm certainly not doing it justice with my description of the facts, but the punchline of that experience was that uh, David Bednar was teaching how you never know when inspiration is coming into your life and sometimes you make decisions sometimes you do certain things without ever realizing that you're being prompted by the spirit and that there is a purpose even in some of the simplest kinds of things and so that story got me to thinking about this experience that I had on my mission that was kind of exactly the opposite I had an experience where I knew that the Lord's hand uh, had been involved in, in literally saving my life and probably that of my companion. And uh, to just help you understand what's going on, my companion and I did a lot of traveling in the mission field, training missionaries and uh, on this one particular day. And so essentially we, we would have some pretty long days. We were traveling a lot, doing going out with the missionaries, teaching lessons and uh, and then doing training and uh, so it was uh, it was pretty laborious and uh, kind of tiring and so on this one morning as we were traveling between towns, I was driving the vehicle and I was getting a little drowsy drowsier than I should have been it's kind of one of those things where when you get as drowsy as I was that's the time that you really pull off the side of the road and uh, take a break. But, uh, you know, we're, we're young, we're vigorous, we're, 
we're trying to keep a schedule. And what I remember is driving on what you would call an interstate in, um, in Holland. They, they weren't really an interstate per se because they, uh, they were a, a two-lane highway that um, had roundabouts in them and so on and so forth. And so as, as we were coming up, I could see somewhat ahead of me this roundabout and in front of me was a large truck, not a large like an 18-wheeler, but uh, something, you know, kind of had a, a tailgate, but it was a, it was a large truck. And I remember just kind of starting to pull up toward him, wondering and thinking, gee, should I pass him or should I wait until we get through the roundabout? Um, and that's the last thing that I remember. And uh, I fell asleep at the wheel. And uh, I know that because I don't remember what happened next. Because when I next came to and realized that I was still driving the car, we had gone through the roundabout and the truck that I was wondering about whether I should pass it or not was in my rear view mirror. So somehow, after I had fallen asleep at the wheel, um, I, had, I had gotten past that truck. I had driven through the roundabout and uh, was on my way on the other side looking in the rear view mirror at both the roundabout and that truck. And, uh, you know, it's one of those moments that uh, you know that uh, the Lord is there. Uh, it was a miracle in my life. And unlike uh, Elder Bednar's experience where you don't realize that something has happened uh, that has had the Lord's hand in it, for me, I knew it in a moment, the moment I woke up. <laughs> I guess there's something metaphorical about that uh, in our lives uh, when we spiritually wake up, because for me, it was a physical waking up uh, and saying that uh, the Lord had been driving that car, um, the Spirit or somebody. It certainly wasn't me, but uh, I, I just wanted to, um, to share that with you. It was prompted by uh, Elder Bednar's experience, and just to let you know that I believe that we do have those experiences all the time where we don't recognize the Lord's hand in our daily lives, um, and and that's okay. And sometimes we learn about him after the fact, and sometimes we don't. But there are sometimes also when we have experiences where you just know the Lord is blessing you. You know he's in your life. You know, you know he's blessing you, uh, and you really can't deny it. And uh, so I just wanted to share that as we begin today, um, knowing that uh, the chapters that we'll be covering today uh, deal with a lot of trials and uh, difficulties as John begins to explain certain events leading up to the second coming. These, these are not going to be pleasant times. They're not going to be easy times. There are going to be trials and tribulations and difficulties. And I just think it's important that whether it's the Lord's hand that is silently in our lives and we don't recognize it, or whether it's more overt and we can see it happening in our lives, I think in either case, we just have to recognize that he's there and will bless us if we're doing the things in our lives that we need to do to merit those kinds of blessings in our lives. So that's kind of the preface to what we're going to be talking about as we begin our discussion today of chapters 6 through 11 of the book of Revelation. Now, just to give you a little bit of an overview, 
Um, I want to kind of go through the topics that we'll be covering. Most of them today, as with the lesson last week, they're all pretty much at the 30,000 foot level. We don't have time to really dig into the nitty gritty of, of every single verse and dissect it and bisect it and, uh, and really see a lot of the cool symbolism and things like that. And I, I can only give you my promise that in the future, I will do a verse-by-verse -verse, uh, discussion about some of the things that we can only uh, go over somewhat in passing today. So you'll recall that uh, last week, or in a podcast actually that I gave uh, on November 19th, this podcast number 8, I already described the uh, contents of Revelation chapter 5 and the book with seven seals that represent seven consecutive periods of 1,000 years each. And so that's going to be important for you to just remember and to keep in mind because today, as we begin our discussion of Revelation chapter 6, those seals now are going to begin to open and we're going to see the history of events um, in each of the seven seals uh, that uh, John began to have open for him as he uh, goes through uh, his discussion in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 6 is going to essentially be the opening of the first six of seven seals that ends with the question, who shall be able to stand? That leads you right into Revelation chapter 7 that then answers that question, and it answers the question by describing the restoration of the gospel and the seal of the living God, which is uh, placed in the forehead of the 144,000 servants um, that are described in that chapter. Now, I'm going to warn you right in advance, I'm not going to spend too much time on Revelation 7 because, I, frankly, there's just too much there. And so I'm going to tell you what these things mean in very general terms, and uh, we'll circle back at another time. By the time you get to chapter 8, we have six seals now opened and behind us, and the seventh seal opens that then leads to the uh, seven plagues, or the what I call the seven trumpet plagues of the seventh seal. So this is where things are going to start getting pretty dicey. Uh, they were already kind of bad before, but uh, this is real bad. <laughs> By the time we get to Revelation chapter 9, we get to the first and second woes that I'll explain to you in a little bit more detail what those are. In Revelation 10, we get to the midpoint uh, of Armageddon and the uh, symbolic description by John of the gathering of saints at Adam on Diamond and his little book mission that prepares the lost ten tribes to be able to participate and attend the, uh, the gathering at Adam on Diamond. And so we'll talk about that a little bit more. And then finally in Revelation chapter 11, we're talking about the last three and a half years after the gathering at Adam on Diamond, a period which is generally referred to by most people as the Great Tribulation. And that's also the three and a half year period of the ministry of the two witnesses in Jerusalem. And then we end Revelation chapter 11 with John's first introduction to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So as you can tell, that's a that's a lot of information to cover, and that's why, uh, unfortunately, we'll have to uh, deal with it uh, in uh, somewhat of a uh, abbreviated form at uh, the 30,000-foot level. Now, I want to circle back for just a moment 
and talk about the uh, the seven seals, uh, which I already did explain in a podcast previously, but I wanted to just give you a little bit more of the significance of these seals and how rather incredible it is the manner in which John describes these seven seals and some of the symbolism that are associated with them. Like so many of the numbers in the book of Revelation, everything has a meaning, everything has a symbol, and you can go back and check out my podcast that deals with the numerology and symbols just to kind of lay the foundation for that. But in the case of these uh, seven seals, they're broken down into two parts. The first four seals run the 4,000 year period from the fall of Adam to the birth of Jesus Christ. And these are known as the four historical seals, which differ from the three prophetic seals that occur after the birth of Jesus Christ. And this this uh, separation between four and three adding up to seven is pretty typical in the book of Revelation. That There are always these kinds of groupings. And uh, so as we talk about these, I want to just give you an idea of some of the complex symbolism associated not only with the nature of the grouping, but also how one relates to another. So we're going to put up on the screen for those of you who are watching this on YouTube. You should have on your screen a summary of the seals and how the first four seals and the symbolism of those first four seals then relate to the future symbols and events in the last three seals. So if you start with the first seal, which would go from 4000 to 3000 BC, the, the main symbol in this particular seal is the white horse. Now keep in mind that the first four historical seals are described using the symbolism of the four horses of the apocalypse that everyone is kind of familiar with. And these these colors have meaning, uh, which we would go over at a later time. But I just want to point out the similarities between the white horse of the first seal, which represents Enoch's triumph over evil, with then moving all the way forward to the last seal, the seventh seal, which is a uh, the imagery that we have is Christ's white horse of triumph at the time of the second coming. So you can see the connection is the first horse of the seven seals correlates to the last horse that is mentioned in the book of Revelation. That's also a white horse. So white horse and white horse go together. The first seal correlates with what's found in the seventh trumpet angel of the seventh seal. And I know this all sounds confusing. <laughs> and that's why this, the, you have this kind of complexity. But it'll, it'll start to make more sense now as we kind of move to the second seal which is a red horse. This is the period covering 3000 to 2000 BC. And the red, of course, is symbolic of the bloodshed on earth before and during Noah's flood. So it's not only that there was lots of death and mayhem at the time of the flood itself, but you had a lot of bloodshed leading up to that point in time. And in fact, I'm, I'm sure you recognize that uh, the last days in which we live are foreshadowed by the type of conditions that existed 
um, leading up to Noah's flood in terms of the wickedness, in terms of the wars, in terms of the bloodshed, all of that. And so all of that's represented by the red horse. Well, guess what? If we now jump all the way to the seventh seal and the sixth trumpet angel, so we take one step back from the seventh to the sixth, and what we have is, again, the symbolism of the red bloodshed of Armageddon, which you find in Revelation chapter 9, verses 13 through 21. That's part of the second woe. And so you see red horse matches red bloodshed uh, at the end of time. Then as we go to the third seal, you have the uh, period from 2000 to 1000 BC, and this is represented by the black horse of the apocalypse. And the black horse represents physical death from the famines that existed during the patriarchal era, all the way from the time of Abraham down to the time of Joseph in Egypt. So this was a period of mass migration of uh, peoples and uh, the Israelites in particular who moved from place to place trying to uh, save their lives uh, because of the lack of food and how they eventually ended up in Egypt uh, where they were saved because uh, Joseph, um, the son of Jacob, had become second only to Pharaoh and had interpreted the dreams, etc., etc. And so what we have in the third seal is a black horse. Well, guess what? We now jump forward in time to the first woe in the seventh seal and we again find this the figure of a blackness but this time instead of being a physical famine we have the blackness of spiritual darkness and spiritual famine that exists in the first woe as described in Revelation 9 1 through 11 so you can begin to see how the first matches the last the second matches the second to the last the third ma matches the third from the last. And finally, we come up to the fourth seal, um, which was the uh, pale horse uh, from the period of about 1000 BC to 1 AD. And this pale horse represents six spiritual conditions of the Israelites after Solomon's death up through the intertestamental period. So for this thousand year period, Israel was in bad conditions spiritually, and that's what's represented by the pale horse. So now, without me telling you, if you're already looking on the screen, you're getting a jump ahead, but if I don't tell you, we're going to have the pale horse experience in the last days leading up to the blackness of spiritual famine and uh, the uh, spiritual death and spiritual darkness that will exist that will then precede the red bloodshed of Armageddon, which will then precede the white horse of triumph at the time of the second coming. So you can see how the last matches the first and, and et cetera, et cetera, and, and it works back. So very, very complex uh, symbols that are associated with these. But as you start to connect to the symbolism, you can begin to appreciate such of some of these uh, subliminal messages and uh, what John is really trying to uh, teach us about things that are yet ahead of us because there's the old saying that history has a way of repeating itself and there's a lot of that going on in the book of Revelation. Okay, so that I just wanted to kind of share that with you, but uh, we now need to move on and get into the details of the uh, uh, book of Revelation dealing specifically with the sixth seal 
that we find in Revelation chapter 6. Now, it's important to point out that the sixth seal is 23 verses long, and it runs from Revelation 6.12 to Revelation 7.17. So those first four, or actually technically five um, seals of the book of Revelation were described in the first 11 verses of Revelation chapter 6. And so that's a lot of ter territory to cover with 11 verses. You covered basically 5,000 years in the first 11 verses of chapter 6. And now as we come to the sixth seal, which is the period covering from roughly 1000 AD to 2000 AD, Plus, I'm adding a plus sign on the end of that because you're sitting here thinking to yourself, hey, wait a minute, we're in 2023. Uh, what happened to the uh, the end of the sixth seal? We should be in the seventh seal. And, uh, and that's true, except John explains why we haven't opened the seventh seal yet. And you're just going to have to hold on to your horses. <laughs> you hold on to your apocalyptic horses um, because we will get there. But there is a reason why the seventh seal doesn't open right at the year 2000. And so you just need to understand, however, that in describing this sixth seal that John explains in 23 verses, it goes all the way from Revelation 6.12 through the end of chapter 7, which is Revelation 7.17. Now, I emphasize that because there are those who say that the sixth seal is described in Revelation chapter 6 and that Revelation chapter 7 is what they would refer to as an interlude. And I talked a little bit about this in one of my prior podcasts where I mentioned the uh, the organization and structure of the book of Revelation and how some people interpret some chapters to be interludes which are essentially a departure from the normal chronological text where John's kind of stepping back, taking it, using that opportunity as kind of a teaching moment, and then stepping back into the story again. And uh, what I'm telling you is Revelation chapter 7 is not an interlude. It is an integral part of the sixth seal. And, and I'll explain that in uh, just a little bit more detail. Now, the thing that's re really significant about the sixth seal is what happens at the end of the sixth seal. Um, because what it describes in those verses is a massive earthquake that it happens. And it almost sounds like when you start out in verse 12, it almost sounds like the massive earthquake is what actually begins the sixth seal. Because John describes how the sixth seal is open and then he sees this massive earthquake. But you have to understand that what John describes in each of the seals isn't necessarily happening at the begin, middle, or end of the seal. He's describing a significant event that kind of epitomizes or summarizes the, the lesson or the events that are most important of that particular seal. And so even though it starts out kind of sounding like this massive earthquake had occurred, um, at the beginning of the seal, it actually happens at the end of the seal. And we know this because when you get down to Revelation 6.17, after he has described the earthquake and its effects and everything, John says, his last question after he's described everything is, who shall be able to stand? 
that answer then gets, or that question then gets answered in Revelation chapter 7 by other events in the sixth seal that will prepare people for this massive earthquake that is to happen at the end of the sixth seal. Now, this question, who shall be able to stand, is kind of an interesting one. It, it kind of reminds me of the movie New in Town. It's starring uh, Renee Zellweger, who was a corporate executive who was working out of Miami, and she's uh, directed to go to New Ulm, Minnesota, to uh, assist with automizing a food processing facility. When her first night at New Ulm, Lucy meets her secretary by the name of Blanche Gunderson. And Blanche and Lucy were riding in the car together where they were trying to find a uh, rental for, uh, for Lucy during her stay at New Ulm. And, and Blanche is, of course, kind of a, a chatty patty and asking all kinds of questions. And uh, essentially, Blanche finally gets to the point of asking Lucy, uh, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? And uh, Lucy responds, isn't that what you've already been doing? And so without missing a beat, Blanche then asks Lucy if she has found Jesus. And I think this question is the same question that John asks in Revelation 6.17 after the big earthquake. And he says, and he's asking this question because the earthquake hasn't happened yet. He's only described that it's going to happen. Then he asks, who is going to be able to stand? And that's kind of like Blanche's question to Lucy have you found Jesus? Because I think the answer is the same. They sound like they're two different questions, but the answer, I think, is invariably the same. The people who shall be able to stand are those who have found Jesus. And that's what then chapter 7 goes on to explain is what does it mean and what do you have to do to qualify as a person who has found Jesus? Now, to just finish up with the movie, we couldn't leave... <laughs> We couldn't leave out the, uh, the the answer to the question that was given by Lucy. After Blanche asks her if she's found Jesus, an, irrita an irritated Lucy then says, I didn't know he was missing. And then she kind of starts laughing at her own joke. Well, you know, here we are in Revelation 6 and Revelation 7, and guess what? It's no joking matter because we have people like that in the world today, don't we? Don't we, when, if you were to ask people, have you found Jesus, you know, we have to define a little bit about exactly what that means. They scoff at it. Uh, they don't take it seriously. They, they make jokes about it. And uh, that's the kind of experience that uh, is going to lead people to not be prepared when these uh, final events of the sixth seal happen. And uh, when they do happen, and they realize they're not prepared, then they're going to wish that they had found Jesus. They're going to wish that they had found him because those that do find him, as John explains in Revelation chapter 7, are those who will be able to stand. So I guess the conclusion or the moral of this story, it's no joking matter. <laughs> and that's kind of what Blanche found out when she was talking with Lucy, is she was a little shocked that anyone would joke about finding Jesus. 
But uh, that's the world we live in today, and there, there you have your metaphor for uh, today's leaven, for, for today's lesson. So uh, at any rate, as we continue on, uh, what you're going to find in chapter 7 that we really don't have time to cover is a description of the restoration of the gospel and the uh, temple work that needs to occur during this period of the sixth seal. If you ever wondered why we're seeing such an upsurge in the number of temples that are being built and why is President Nelson so focused on uh, building all of these temples and making sure that everyone has access to a temple you need to read chapter 7 carefully, and, and uh, I wish we had time to go over it in more detail. But the short answer is, is because this is the great period of temple work. This is the period that prepares people to receive their temple covenants so that they can be able to stand with Jesus Christ on Mount Zion at the time of the second coming. And uh, that's a mouthful, because we're going to meet these 144,000 servants that are sealed and therefore prepared to stand, not only to stand through physical trials and tribulations, but uh, more importantly, to qualify themselves to stand as exaltation-worthy people on Mount Zion. And we're going to run into these people again when we get to Revelation chapter 14. So that's what seven, uh, chapter 7 is all about, is describing how the restoration of the church and temple work exists in our day so that we can prepare ourselves to stand, not only as the sixth seal comes to an end, but all of the events leading up to the second coming. Now, let me talk a little bit about this uh, earthquake uh, in a little bit more detail because uh, when you're looking at uh, the great earthquake, uh, you have to understand that there are several earthquakes that are described in the book of Revelation. And in Revelation 6, 12 through 14, John gives us a, uh, a specific description of this as follows. He said, quote, And I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, this is where I mentioned before, it sounds a little bit like at the time of the opening of the sixth seal is when the great earthquake occurs. But again, he's only describing that essentially when he had opened the sixth seal, something is going to happen, and one of the significant events is going to be the great earthquake. It's not that the great earthquake opens the seal. So let me start again. And I beheld, when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casteth her untimely figs, when she is shaken of a mighty wind, and the heaven departed as a scroll, when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Now, as you consider this description, uh, specifically uh, this notion that every mountain and island were moved out of their places, and I'm telling you that this is an actual physical earthquake that will occur, contrary to certain opinions and interpretation, where some interpret this as some symbol of political upheavals, revolutions from the past, and uh, even some interpret this idea of the movement of mountains in Revelation 6.14 as the removal of high places 
of pagan worship in history, which they kind of got that all wrong because they make the assumption that the high places of pagan worship were removed as Christianity uh, through the Constantinian church kind of overcame pagan worship. But uh, if you understand the history a little bit more carefully, we know that the church that Christ established was long gone by the time uh, Christianity was quote-unquote established by Constantine in uh, the early fourth century. And at the time that he established his form of Christianity, he basically forced all of the pagans to come into the church because the uh, church, uh, you had to join the church. Some people were paid gold to join the church. Others, if you didn't join, you were killed. And so people were entering the church of uh, Constantine in droves at the point of a sword, including all of the pagan worshipers. And eventually one of his successors actually outlawed paganism. So this is where they get this concept that uh, the movement of mountains is the removal of pagan worship uh, when exactly the opposite happened. What you had was essentially pagan worshipers entering into the church and polluting it um, in rather significant ways uh, because of the what was required for the Christians living in the early late 4th century. So at any rate, what I'm telling you is essentially we're talking here about an actual earthquake that uh, involves the shaking of the entire earth because it's saying every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So we're talking about a literal event that will occur in the near future at the end of the sixth seal. And this is an earthquake that's going to be more powerful than any other earthquakes in recent recorded history. And this is another reason why we know this earthquake didn't occur um, at the start of the sixth seal, which would place it in time at roughly 1000 AD. Well, they, didn't, they weren't keeping the best of records, but earthquakes and significant earthquakes were certainly something that uh, people were tracking and were following. So we know, for example, when I was describing some of the uh, history and uh, events of the seven cities in Asia Minor, I detailed some of the earthquakes that were recorded and were known in like 17 AD and how these cities rebuilt. So these are these are things that are recorded. And if we had an earthquake that big, somebody would have been talking about it. And there's none recorded in history around the time of uh, 1000 AD or any other time where you literally had an earthquake that had sufficient magnitude that mountains and islands everywhere worldwide were being affected by the extent of this. Now, it's, you have to keep in mind that uh, we have in the record of the Book of Mormon a history of a powerful earthquake or series of earthquakes that occurred on the American continent at the time of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And so that earthquake was probably more powerful than the earthquake described by John in Revelation 6. But in the case of the earthquake at the time of the crucifixion, it was very isolated. In other words, only the Western Hemisphere was subjected to the effects of that earthquake. The difference is the one that's going to be coming up at the end of the sixth seal is probably not going to be that devastating, but it is going to be a, a much larger worldwide kind of phenomenon. And uh, this is then going to be a foreshadow for other earthquakes that will occur 
as we get closer to the second coming. So even though it's extremely destructive and is going to have this kind of worldwide effect, you have to understand that the earthquake in Revelation chapter 6 is basically a foreshock for the more destructive earthquakes that will then follow. So this is the first of three. And in this one, every mountain and island will be moved out of their places. Contrast that with the third and final earthquake that occurs at the time that Jesus steps his foot on the Mount of Olives when we learn from that discussion from other uh, prophecies that that last and final earthquake is going to be so powerful that it will have the effect of merging entire continents together. And that's the period of time when we talk about the earth trembling and reeling to and fro as a drug as a drunken man. And so as you talk as we go through the book of Revelation we talk about some of the earthquakes that are going to be yet in our future. It's important to recognize that some scholars who discuss these earthquakes fail to distinguish the three different final earthquakes as separate events. And uh, when they fail to do so, oftentimes they make the assumption that John is essentially describing the same earthquake three different times. And you know my views. If you've listened to my podcast on uh, the book of Revelation structure and uh, that which I've talked about already, that John talks chronologically. I know I'm beating a dead horse here a little bit, but he talks chronologically and he doesn't repeat himself. And uh, if you start making these kinds of assumptions, you miss the timeline completely and you're doing yourself a disservice. So just keep that in mind and we'll, we'll get to our discussion of these other, other um, earthquakes in due course. But what we need to understand is that this great earthquake at the end of the sixth seal is a prominent sign of the times. Now it's preceded by many other earthquakes of growing intensity in diverse places. Um, and so a lot of people, when they, they get to this last earthquake of the sixth seal, you know, they're going to kind of sh- shrug it off. Oh, yeah, well, we, they, we've had lots of earthquakes, and yes, they've been growing worse and worse. It's kind of like the natural disasters that we have going on in the earth today. Everybody's got some kind of a scientific explanation for them, and they just forget about God in the equation and the fact that these things are prophesied. We're seeing uh, prophecy fulfilled, and many people don't recognize it as such. And uh, these are they who are not going to be prepared for the things that come because they don't see in them the spiritual manifestations uh, that they should be able to see. It's kind of like the kind of experience I had on my mission that was so obvious to me that the Lord's hand was involved in my life. And for most people, they kind of treat these sorts of things like as more of a David L. an Elder Bednar experience where something spiritual happened and they don't recognize it until something is explained after the facts. Do you learn after the fact that, oh, that was a spiritual manifestation. That was the Holy Ghost's influence. And so, unfortunately, most people won't recognize it in either respect and uh, won't be pre-prepared. And so all I can tell you by way of kind of wrapping this up a little bit is uh, some of the worst natural disasters that we're seeing on the earth today 
are only going to continue to get worse. And John describes them in, uh, in pretty good detail. As we go through the lesson today, we're going to find that uh, how that is, uh, will be true. And the hope is, of course, that when uh, people have this uh, earthquake that happens at the end of the sixth seal, this will be kind of a wake-up call. That earthquake is not designed to destroy people. It is a judgment uh, it is a show of God's power, but it's really something that is designed to help people recognize their sinful state and to motivate them to repent. Now, we're going to eventually cross the red line that everybody's always talking about in the world today. And when you cross the red line, then there's, there's a point of no return. You can no longer uh, repent because you've gone beyond. You had too many chances. You heard the voices of God's servants who were warning you to repent and you didn't do it. And so then after he sends the voices of his servants, he sends the voices of physical calamities, natural disasters. And if people still fail to repent and to recognize God's hand and his purpose in these disasters, eventually these disasters will turn into events that are designed to destroy them and to punish people because they refuse to repent. But this is not that time. So that's the good news for those of us living now in the sixth seal. There's, there's still time to repent. Even if you're hanging out when this uh, uh, great earthquake occurs at the end of the sixth seal, this will be something that will be a wake-up call um, and will allow people to uh, recognize the things they need to do in their lives. Okay, so that's, that's kind of some information about the sixth seal and about as much time as we have to be able to devote to it today. As we go on to uh, Revelation chapter 7, 1, keeping in mind that the last verse in chapter 6, that is 6.17, John asks the question, who shall be able to stand? Or in the words of Blanche, have you found Jesus, right? And so now here's the answer to the query, at least the start of the answer to the query. Revelation 7.1 says, And after these things I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the sea, nor on any tree. Now, remember I told you a moment ago that technically speaking, we should have had the seventh seal happening by the year 2000. If each of the seven seals represents one a 1,000 year period of the earth's temporal history, we, we go from four to three to two to one, and then from one to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000. Well, two answers, first of all, they're not exactly. They don't always fall exactly right on the millennial end or the millennial start. So you, you got to kind of disabuse yourself of that notion to begin with. The other thing is there's a logical reason that John explains why the seventh seal couldn't be open at the time of the year 2000. And this is where we get into that explanation here in Revelation chapter 7, 1, because John sees these four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth that the wind should not blow. In other words, these, these angels that are standing on the corners of the earth, they are withholding the four winds of destruction of the earth from blowing on the earth, the sea, and on the trees. And so John is explaining to us that even though 
it's time to open the seventh seal and to really begin the final culminating events leading up to the second coming, the word is the four angels have to stand down. Hold your, <laughs> hold your apocalyptic horses, you four angels, because <clears throat> we have to essentially get the events taken care of that are recorded in the seventh chapter of Revelation before the destructive winds start to blow. So, Let's talk about these four angels for just a second, and I'm just going to kind of give you an overview of who's who the who they are and what they're doing. You've got the four angels uh, that are basically the four restoration angels of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, Doctrine and Covenants section seventy-seven eight confirms who these angels are. So Joseph Smith got to ask the Lord, "Who are these guys?" And the answer from the Lord was, "They are sent from God." to whom is given power over the four parts of the earth, who have the everlasting gospel to commit to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Now, this is a significant answer because it tells us not only are these four angels, the four angels associated with the restoration of the gospel, but they are also have power as destroying angels. We're going to put them on hold, however, until they commit the everlasting gospel to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So what do you suppose, while we're in this period of delay, what do you suppose we're supposed to be doing with that time? And the answer obviously is that we need to be taking the everlasting gospel and commit it to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. And that's not a new concept. We all understand that, hey, the Lord's not coming until the gospel is taken to all the world. That's what he told his disciples to do at the end of Matthew chapter 28. At the time of his ascension, he charged his apostles and his disciples to take the gospel to all the nations, baptizing in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And we have that same charge today. And now John is telling us that until we have completed that charge, we have to hold the seventh seal in abeyance pending that work all right now the thing that's equally important it's not just that the gospel has to go to every nation kindred tongue and people it's equally if not even more important that for those who accept the gospel they also have to receive the seal of the living god to be able to stand at the second coming and in other words those who receive the seal of the god <clears throat> won't be metaphorically blown away by the destructive winds at the end of the sixth seal or by the destructive winds of judgment that will blow even more fiercely during the seventh seal. So that's what we're supposed to be doing. So it should come as no surprise to us that we're seeing temples announced in all parts of the world um, because that's really, I, I sometimes think the only reason we really have the restoration of the gospel is just so that we can do temple work. <laughs> Because really, if all we're interested in is getting converts to the gospel of Jesus Christ, our work isn't done um, until those people also receive their temple blessings. And one is not complete without the other. And so the, uh, the fact that we have four angels identified in Revelation 7-1 is also symbolically significant. Again, the number four represents the world number. It represents a geographical completeness, and here that's made very clear 
that these four angels symbolize the worldwide scope of their mission in the four parts of the earth. And they stand with authority <clears throat> on the four corners of the earth to gather Israel from all the world. Now notice here we have the use of these four words, nation, kindred, tongue, and people. That, that four, the use of these four words is again symbolic. The four is significant and uh, that demonstrates the worldwide scope of the work that they have to be doing. Now it's also kind of interesting because the, the number four is used in a symbolic sense and that's probably the true meaning of it because we know if we look at them just in terms of the role that the angels had in the restoration of the gospel. There were more than four angels involved. Um, and so a lot of times we talk about the angels of the restoration being composite angels. So uh, everybody kind of comes together. We bestow keys to the things that happened since even God the Father and Jesus Christ first appeared to the boy Joseph in the spring of 1820 all the way through to the end of 1836 when Elijah appeared at the Kirtland Temple and delivered the last keys of the restoration. There were a lot of angels, um, and I think that there were more angels than we even have a record of, according to Joseph Smith and the numbers of people that visited him. Some of them are well known to us, others less known, uh, but there were a lot of angels that had, certainly more than four. However, Let's assume for just a moment that John was actually discussing these four angels in Revelation chapter 7 as being literally four angels. Who would those four angels be? Um, and the short answer is and must be, that would be John the Baptist followed by Peter, James, and John in 1829. Now why those four? Well, those are the four that delivered priesthood keys that allowed for the organization of the church in April of 1830. So John the Baptist, of course, brought the keys of the Aaronic priesthood. Peter, James, and John brought the keys associated with the Melchizedek priesthood and the apostleship and bestowed them in each case upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. Now, if you stop, think about who was the first to appear we actually have the angel Moroni, who came six years before these visits by John the Baptist, Peter, James, and John. Six years prior to that, in 1823, the angel Moroni shows up, and he's hanging out with Joseph Smith for like four years, instructing him, teaching him, ultimately uh, showing him the location of the golden plates, and delivering them into Joseph's custody. Now, what's interesting about the angel Moroni, of course, is he didn't restore any priesthood keys. He brought a lot of information and assisted Joseph with learning a lot of information, but he did not restore any priesthood keys. And therefore, if we want to assume that the four angels identified in Revelation 7-1 are four angels specifically, then it is and must be that those four would be John the Baptist, followed by Peter, James, and John, who gave their uh, priesthood authority. So that's the extent of what I want to talk about in uh, chapter 7. Again, we're not touching very much on the seal of the living God, the, the temple work that needs to be completed, and why it needs to be completed in the period of the sixth seal. 
Um, and I'll circle back and we'll, we'll cover that uh, in later editions of this podcast. So let us now turn our attention to chapter 8, which is the opening of the seventh seal. Now, here we begin to get an explosion of information as we now move into the seventh seal. So essentially, you'll keep in mind I told you that the first five seals were described in the first 11 verses of chapter 6. And then we had 23 verses to describe the events of the sixth seal from found in Revelation 6 through the end of chapter 7, now beginning in Revelation 8 and continuing through chapter 19, we have a description of the seventh seal in 211 verses. So needless to say, this is not a historical book. It's a book that is describing future events that explain and foretell events of the second coming. Now the second coming will occur early in time in the seventh seal, but the second coming does not coincide with the opening of the seventh seal. We, we still have some business that we need to take care of. And the first thing that happens is we have uh, this silence in heaven, uh, followed by these deadly judgments that then intensify to the time of the seventh coming, to the second coming. And the seventh seal actually continues to the end of the thousand year millennium. And so it's a, it, it covers the, the millennium, but uh, first we have to get through the second seal to enjoy the blessings of the millennium. And uh, so let's start with Revelation 8, verse 1, which states, When he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour. Now, again, we get some misinterpretations of what this silence in heaven is by various scholars, some of whom said that this is uh, some period of uh, earthly calm in past history, and they actually can give you the names of wars and when these uh, periods of calm were, um, which we don't need to spend any time looking at today. But uh, that's obviously not a correct interpretation because, as I've told you, these events are to occur yet future. The one thing I think we can say with uh, some confidence is that uh, after you have the worldwide calamities at the end of the sixth seal, including this major earthquake, I think there will be an actual silence that will correspond to a literal cessation of worldwide uh, calamities on earth. And as support for this, um, I refer you to the destruction that occurred on the American continent at the time of the crucifixion. Remember, there were three hours when you just had this massive earthquake happening. And the thing that's recorded in the Book of Mormon is that there was this period of silence after that destruction, which was then followed by Christ's appearance to what is described as the, quote, more righteous survivors, close quote. Now, recognizing that the events of in America at that time are foreshadows for the coming of Jesus Christ, you see how they line up exactly. We have a massive earthquake, you have silence, and then you have Christ's appearance to the more righteous survivor. 
happened at the time of Christ and his crucifixion. It will happen again at the time of the second coming. So this silence that we're talking about here in Revelation 8.1 is probably a literal kind of silence. Um, and even though it is a literal science, silence in Scripture often has a theological meaning as well. It, Times of silence represent a time of spiritual renewal among the righteous, right? We, we, you've all had the temple experience. You go to the temple, you go sit in the celestial room, and unless you're like my family, we're all chatty patties. <laughs> Most people go to the, the celestial room and they sit silently because it's a time of spiritual renewal. Um, and the same is true of the Day of Atonement. Uh, which is also a foreshadow for things in the future. And on the Day of Atonement, of course, is when this happens once a year. And uh, as the high priest entered into the Holy of Holies, where he would officiate and make intercession for the sins of all the Israelites in the Holy of Holies, um, all of the Israelites would stand outside in silence, all right? And so that type of silence has some important application for the um, events of, that are being described by John in Revelation 8.1. And although I'm not going to spend a great deal of time talking about the description of what happens during that half hour of silence, John actually does give us a description of the events of what's happening in heaven during the half hour of silence. And guess what? It mirrors the events that happen on the Day of Atonement as the Israelites worshipped anciently in the tabernacle on that most holy day of the year. So because of the correlation between the two, what we can conclude is, is that number one, there will be an actual silence that will be felt and experienced here on earth as the seventh seal opens and it's it's not going to be hard to detect because it's going to come right at the end of all of these huge calamities at the end of the sixth seal and the other thing is it's going to be a time of spiritual renewal and remember i told you that the purpose of the great earthquake is not so much for destroying people and punishing them for their unrighteousness and wickedness, but it is to bring about a spiritual revival, a time of reflection, a time of repentance, and a time to draw near to the Lord before you get to that red line, and then it's too late to repent. Um, and so the last thing that I'll simply touch on in terms of the uh, this half hour of silence is the question, well, how long does it actually last? <laughs> Because you get some different interpretations about uh, whether it's literally 30 minutes of actual time on earth. And I, I think it's not too much of a stretch to say that nobody would actually think that you get 30 minutes and you recognize, oh, there's that, uh, there's that uh, silence we were waiting for. Um, but what it, do, what it means is probably an indefinite pause that we will recognize upon the earth that will be long enough for the wicked to recognize this as an act of God before his judgments start to fall. So again, this is something that's going to benefit the wicked. And by wicked, I don't mean necessarily the really, really bad guys. I mean, they're going to be pretty hardened in their positions, but I'm talking about people who have been a little bit lackadaisical in their faith in God, who 
could be members of the church who uh, haven't been as active as what they could have been. And now all of a sudden, this will be for them a wake-up call. Um, on the other hand, we do have some people who uh, kind of have a mathematical calculation that this half hour in heaven represents 21 years on earth. And they premise that mathematical calculation on the fact that a day with the Lord is as a thousand years on earth. And so you calculate, okay, a half an hour where one day is equal to a thousand years, uh, you know, click, click, click on your calculator, and uh, oh, that's 21 years. That's, that's where they, they come up with that. It has some appeal to it, um, but the premise is faulty because what John is estimating here is a half an hour as an earthly measure, all right? So you, you have this half hour of silence, but it's a half an hour of earthly science, uh, a measure, and uh, it's symbolic, okay? And if you can kind of compare it to the worship on the Day of Atonement, you know, the high priest, when he goes in to make the intercession, it's not going to last too much more than a half an hour or so. The only exception would be um, when uh, Zechariah went into the Day of Atonement and had Gabriel come down and visit and announce that uh, he was going to be a father. It, that took a little bit longer discussion. <laughs> it says the people you'll remember were standing outside the temple saying, hey, this has taken longer than normal. What's going on in there? And uh, and so the, the idea of a short measure of time is very consistent with what John would have been familiar with uh, as events associated with the uh, the Day of Atonement and the intercession that was made by the high priest when they entered the uh, the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. So uh, essentially, uh, by way of conclusion, let me also add that um, there the Doctrine and Covenants also describes a period of silence when the seventh seal is open in Doctrine and Covenants section 8895. Now this, these two half hour, half hour periods of silence are actually two different periods. So in Revelation 8.1, we have a half an hour of silence that begins when the seventh seal is open. In Doctrine and Covenants 88.95, it tells us that this half hour of silence occurs immediately before the start of the resurrection at the time of the second coming. So what that tells us and what I know from my chronological understanding of events as described by John, these things actually happen years apart. And so we know that they're not the same period of half an hour silence that is being described, although some think that they are. Um, but what, what we learn is from this second half hour of silence before the resurrection at the second coming is that it is very brief because it occurs after the grand sign of the Son of Man in verse 93 and before the resurrection trumpet in DNC 8895. Okay, and so that's where this second half hour period of silence happened. And that half hour, again, doesn't have to be a precise half hour but it is a relatively short period of time that we're talking about. And since the silence in uh, DNC 88 correlates to and has similarities to the half hour of silence at the beginning of the seventh seal, 
it suggests again that the proper interpretation is that it's a relatively short period of time, certainly not any 21 years. I mean, we're talking could be days, uh, you know, maybe a week, it could be hours. I mean, I'm, I'm kind of speculating here a little bit, but all I can tell you with any certainty is it's not a particularly long period of time. And uh, after you get through that half hour of silence, where essentially what you have is a preparatory period where the seven trumpet plagues or judgments that are going to then be cast out upon the earth. And those that's what begins in Revelation chapter 8 are the trumpet plagues. And again, we're going to see this, uh, what I described earlier when we talk about the number seven, how it gets broken down into four and into three. And in chapter eight, we get the first four trumpet plagues that happen that are grouped together as a group. And then by the time you get down to Revelation 8.13, we're now down to the last three trumpet plagues, and they get treated entirely separately. So they're a distinct group. Last point I'll simply make in terms of the first four trumpet plagues, they are all partial in their scope, meaning the judgments associated with these plagues are uh, merely preparatory. They, they continue to be warning signs for people to repent. So we aren't to the red line yet, all right? So then we come to Revelation 8.13, and this is what it says. And I beheld and heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe. Now, <laughs> I just have to stop here. When you get three woes in a, in a, in an, in a row, that, that means pay attention. It's, it's going to get ugly. Okay, so at any rate, John hears this loud voice, Woe, 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 to the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the other voices of the trumpet of the three angels which are yet to sound. And so what he's saying here is you've now had four trumpet plagues that have occurred all partial in their scope, but pretty bad. But now we're getting to the serious stuff. And so the, we're going to have three woes. The first woe corresponds to the fifth trumpet angel. The second woe corresponds to the sixth trumpet angel. And then the third woe corresponds to the seventh trumpet angel. And I've explained in prior podcasts how these Seven seals gets broken down into seven trumpet angels and how seven trumpet angels then get broken down into seven vile plagues. And then when you get down to the seventh vile plague, it explodes into uh, seven other kinds of things and uh, plagues. And so uh, all of these things are have the, this kind of uh, correlation. But all I can tell you is these trumpet plagues are kind of the wind-up to the uh, the second coming, uh, and they're going to continue to get uh, worse and worse as you continue to go along. So you think about your life's experiences now, you think about what's going on in the world today, and you, you kind of shudder a little bit, think, oh my gosh, you mean it's going to get worse than it is now? And the, uh, the short answer is yes. <laughs> I'm I'm sorry to be the bearer of this bad news, but uh, it is. But, you know, if you stop and think about your life and things that uh, are real challenges for you, um, 
I hope that these challenges, these trials, these tribulations are also things that you can kind of look back on and see how they have been a refining experience in your life, right? That's, that's what it was all about with Joseph Smith in Liberty Jail and uh, uh, kind of uh, feeling sorry for himself after a horrible, horrible experience of six months in that uh, prison that just had these horrible conditions. Um, and the Lord talking with him and soothing him and telling him all these things shall, uh, shall be for thy learning and experience. And uh, we all have them. And I'm going to use uh, one experience in my life that, you know, doesn't do justice to the, uh, to the realities of, uh, of the difficulties that life sometimes can throw at us. But, you know, in my young life, it was, it was impactful. Um, and I'm describing here the, the time when I, uh, went into the uh, Marine Corps after I graduated from college in 1984. And so uh, I was newly married in January of 1984 and uh, got to spend those first five or six months uh, in marital bliss with my wife. And then the next thing I know, because I had signed up to go to uh, officer candidate school in the summer of 1984, we were pulled apart <laughs> for a 10-week period while I went back to Quantico, Virginia. And it's, it's like your typical boot camp. You, you have to understand that essentially the job is they're going to break you down mentally, emotionally, physical, every possible way, and then they're going to rebuild you into the uh, image of uh, a Marine, Semper Fi. <laughs> and so, I mean, it, it was a, a challenging experience uh, on many levels, and, but, but there was a lot of funny things that uh, kind of happened along the way that I wanted, you know, I'm digressing here just, <laughs> just a little bit here. But I remember we were kind of uh, preparing for inspection. So periodically you'd have these inspections. And, uh, you know, I mean, we were all the scum of the earth. We couldn't even refer to ourselves in the first person pronoun. Instead of saying who I am, I'd have to say the candidate is. You know, I, I was candidate Cassinet. I wasn't John Cassinet. They, they took my identity away from me and uh, all, all these rules and, and things that you had to follow just uh, because it was part of the... Uh, the regimen. But at any rate, we were preparing for these inspections. And uh, initially, the inspections were kind of done by uh, the drill sergeant and our sergeant instructor, and they'd be going through and just, uh, you know, they were horrible to prepare for. But we were going to have the company commander coming through. Um, and uh, they wanted to make sure that we look good for when the actual captain, who was our company commander, would come through and do this inspection. So I remember during one of the uh, the practice inspections, um, there was, I was Cassinet, and the guy next to me was Costello, you know, the C's are all together. Well, Costello, as you might imagine, was Italian. I mean, he could shave, and it would look like 30 minutes later, he had a five o'clock shadow. And so they were always pounding on him. Costello, you can't come to inspection with five o'clock shadow <laughs> and screaming at his face just uh, inches away and uh, so uh, he they were pounding on him for that I remember another time now keep in mind in my particular company there was a number of us who were getting ready to go to law school so I went into officer Canada school um, had my acceptance to law school and the plan was that uh, if I made it through officer candidate school got my commission 
I would then go off to uh, to law school for three years, and then eventually were brought back on active duty. Well, I was the the same with a number of them, and there was this other uh, guy <laughs> who I will never forget. His name was Jansen, and oh, he we got he got so flustered during the inspection. The the drill sergeants just screaming at him and yelling at him, and uh, you know he he wasn't really the mold of a marine, you know, physically and and other things like that. But I remember the drill sergeant just yelling at him, and in response, uh, uh, Canada Jansen said, Yes, your honor! <laughs> Instead of referring to him as the drill sergeant, he referred to him as your honor. And oh, the drill sergeant just went crazy. Did you hear what he called me? Did you hear what he called me? So anyway, that's kind of stuff all leading up to the inspection. So anyway, on the day, oh, there was one other guy that I remember, he was a black guy, uh, whose name, unfortunately, I don't remember, but, uh, you know, he, he was always getting hammered because of his beard growth also, but his problem was because, you know, with black people, you have that really tight uh, hair that just twists, and uh, um, and, and the problem is for, for men, if they, uh, if they shave close, uh, they get what's called the uh, pseudofocalitis, and uh, which is essentially these ingrown hairs because you cut it off close to the skin line that that little hair is already trying to turn underneath the skin so that by the time it grows it doesn't come out it grows under the skin and so they were hammering him hammering him hammering him that he wasn't doing a good enough job of shaving and so finally he said okay i'm i'm so tired of this they're going to see what's going to happen when i do this and so he shaved really close and sure enough by the time of the uh, inspection, when the company commander's inspection came along, he had just these bulges in his neck where all these hairs had grown in and, and it just, you know, the skin was just really puffy and stuff where the, the hairs couldn't get out from under the skin and, and it just looked horrible. So anyway, the day of the company commander is coming. Coming along, and uh, here I am standing next to Costello, and he comes and takes a look at me and does my inspection. You know, he dings me on some stuff. I, <laughs> I remember he he looked in my ears, and I hadn't uh, cleaned out the wax in my ears. Uh, I didn't do anything at all. I, you know, you just don't think of everything. Who who would imagine that the company commander is going to turn around and go to the side and take a look in my ear, right? Well, he did, and he said, "Kenneth Casnett." Did you clean your ears out? No, company commander, but the candidate will do so. <laughs> and so at any rate, uh, he dings me on some stuff. Then he comes next door to uh, Costello. Now, Costello on that day was so nervous about having a five o'clock shadow that a half an hour before the inspection, he's in the latrine shaving and shaving back and forth, back and forth, just trying to get every possible stubble out of this very heavy beard growth that he has. Um, and uh, by the time the, the inspection starts, he's got all these little blood spots. <laughs> all over his face because he was shaving so hard. And so the company commander goes next to him after leaving me, takes one look at uh, Candidate Costello. He says, Candidate Costello, do not come to an inspection with blood on your face. <laughs> and so that was his experience. So the other guy, the black guy that I was mentioning to, whose name I can't remember, by the time of that inspection, because uh, he had shaved so closely, his neck was just in horrible. 
And, you know, the company commander was really a pretty good guy. He could see what was going on. And uh, he just told him, you need to go to the medical bay and you need to get a chit about your shaving. <laughs> Which all of us were saying, yeah, take it to the drill sergeants who made him shave and everything like that. But uh, at any rate, you know, I, I've told you too much about this story anyway. But my Marine Corps experience is we had these kind of humorous things happening. At the moment, they weren't so humorous. Uh, you know, yeah, Costello was pretty humorous and Jansen, but uh, but it was hard. They broke you down, and, and some of the experiences uh, that I had is just like, man, am I going to survive this? Uh, what am I putting myself through? Is this really all worth it? Um, but I'll tell you what, when we got down after the 10 weeks, Jan came out to Quantico and... Uh, um, got to be there for my uh, graduation and for uh, being commissioned and you know she got to put on my little butter bars and I'll tell you what it's one of the proudest times of my life I mean it was much a much bigger deal for me to experience that than it was for me to even graduate from college uh, after four years of struggling and everything that few minutes that I had at the end of that ceremony and being commissioned in the Marine Corps was uh, just really, really something that was very powerful and meaningful for me. And so it is in, in life with these challenging things. And so even though we look forward to a lot of trials and difficulties in the future, even more so than what we're having, and we, you might be feeling like, oh, I can't take anything more than this. Trust me, when you get to the end, of these trumpet plagues and the vile plagues and the second coming and the Savior is there saying well done thou good and faithful servant thou hast been faithful over a few things I will make thee a ruler over many things that will make it all worth it and suddenly the challenges and the difficulties and the trials that have gotten you there they're going to evaporate and what you remember are these really great experiences of standing for inspections and uh, and seeing some of the funny things that happen, the things that are most trying. Somehow you find the silver lining in them. And, and I think that's the way that it can be for, uh, for you as we move into the future. So we got to move on. Uh, so as we come to the... Uh, end of the uh, eighth chapter we move now into chapter nine this is where we begin these three woes that the angel announced in uh, revelation 8 13 remember he announced three of them the first woe is uh, the uh, sixth trumpet angel and uh, revelation 9 2 says this about that first woe he says he opened the bottomless pit and there arose a smoke out of the pit as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. Okay, now that we've kind of looked at this verse, let me elaborate just a little bit on its meaning. First, we need to understand that the first woe begins when the fifth trumpet angel opens the bottomless pit, which is a synonym for the word hell. You also need to understand that when it's talking about this smoke billowing up out of the pit and the sun and air being darkened, uh, we're really talking about the hosts of hell being unleashed on earth. And what I mean by the hosts of hell, 
are those unembodied and disembodied spirit sons of perdition. Now, let me further break this down and talk about what do I mean by unembodied spirit sons of perdition. This group consists of those spirits who followed Lucifer in the premortal existence when he rebelled at the time of the Grand Council in heaven. And because of their rebellion, they were denied physical bodies and never have the opportunity of being born into this life and receiving a physical body. Therefore, they are and will always remain as unembodied spirit sons of perdition. The other group that we have who include uh, the hosts of hell are those who would be the disembodied spirit sons of perdition. These are people who uh, manage to keep their first estate and therefore were physically born into this life with mortal bodies, but then during the period of their mortal probation, they committed the unpardonable sin and therefore were denied the right to um, be resurrected into a kingdom of glory. They will be uh, people who end up in outer darkness or what we call the lake of fire. During the time period before their physical resurrection, they are disembodied spirits, as is anyone who dies and before they're resurrected, they are a disembodied spirit, meaning they once had a body, they were embodied, but when they die, they're disembodied. So these spirit sons of perdition who are disembodied are people who were mortal sons of perdition by having committed the unpardonable sin during their lifetimes. And these, together with the unembodied spirit sons, are unleashed on earth with great power during this first woe when the bottomless pit is opened and uh, and they come out and wreak lots and lots of havoc and there's you've got this spiritual darkness that is described in this verse it's a it's like spiritual blackness right and that corresponds to what we talked about a minute ago uh, may have been more than a minute ago when we were talking about the horsemen of the apocalypse and how you had the black horse uh, representing spiritual famine or physical famine here we are now with the first woe correlating to that with this blackness <clears throat> from the pit and uh, the fact that we have these uh, evil spirits coming up from hell now you've heard the old saying I'm sure that whatever goes up must come down and that's also true of these evil spirits that will be unleashed from the bottomless pit during the first woe. At some point in time, they have to go back again. What goes up must come down. And what I mean to say by this is, when we get to the point of the second coming, and the earth is going through this cleansing process, it's not only a physical cleansing of the earth that has to occur, there has to also be a spiritual cleansing. If we got all these spirits running around or really bad guys, we got to get rid of them. They've got to be put away because they can't continue <clears throat> to exist on the earth during the period of the millennium. And so essentially what it means is, as we talk about the events leading up to the second coming, there are going to be physical cleansing, things like Armageddon, uh, physical bad guys, uh, sons of perdition. I'm talking now about mortal sons of perdition and telestial people. We, we're all familiar with those prophecies that talk about 
they can't continue to survive after the second coming, and so the earth will be physically cleansed of them. Then we have these evil spirits, some of which have been around since the time of the earth's creation, when the unembodied spirit sons were cast down on earth with Lucifer. And uh, then we got disembodied spirit sons <clears throat> of perdition, who have also been upon the earth, well, we got to get rid of those guys too. So there are two fronts that we're fighting as we approach the second coming. One is a physical front, and one is a spiritual front. <coughs> and we'll have to uh, go ahead and talk about that in more detail as we get to it. Now, one other thing that we know about is that as we approach the first woe and then uh, continue on to the second woe, uh, these Latter-day signs of the times are going to increase in their intensity and in their fulfillment. And these evil spirits that are released during the first woe are going to have great power, much more power than they have today to influence people and to spread spiritual darkness across the earth. And as they do so, that's when we get this spiritual darkness like a dense smoke uh, from a great furnace. And... Uh, as that happens, the other thing is is that as uh, as darkness increases upon the earth, well, you can't have light and dark in the same place. And so on the earth as we know it, the light of truth and the light of Christ are going to continually and increasingly withdraw from the earth among these wicked peoples who will choose darkness rather than light. This is the period of time that we talk about when we're talking about this uh, gross wickedness and massive corruption and peace being taken from the earth and the devil having power over his own dominion. All of these things are things that are going to begin to increase with uh, exponential effects as we go into the first woe. But keep in mind that even as bad as it's going to get during the first woe, it's, it's simply a prelude to the much greater wickedness uh, that is going to happen as we continue on into the second woe. And it is these kinds of things that will bring us to the brink of Armageddon as we uh, go through there. Now, the, the spiritual darkness that you have of the first woe is basically symbolically synonymous with uh, Lehi's myths of darkness. So you have this darkness that in 1 Nephi 12, 17, it says it blindeth the eyes and hardeneth the hearts of the children of men and leadeth them away into broad roads that they perish and are lost. So Lehi's, Lehi's vision confirms that many mortal souls will be lost spiritually during the first woe. And that's going to include many apostate people uh, from within the church are going to qualify themselves to become mortal sons of perdition. And, you know, there's a, a somewhat of a deba debate uh, among scholars within the church. Are there going to be only a few apostates? Uh, are there only going to be a few mortal sons of perdition? And um, I agree with uh, Elder McConkie, Bruce R. McConkie, says there's going to be a lot of them. <laughs> And this is where a lot of it is going to begin. We already see shades of it in the church today. People waffling and, uh, you know, antagonists against the church. Well, you know, 
this is a prelude of coming attractions, so we can get ready for a lot more of that, and it's going to come as spiritual darkness begins to engulf the earth during this uh, first woe that has been predicted by uh, John the Revelator. On the other hand, and the good news is, I don't want you feeling like I'm just totally pummeling you all, all the time. The, the good news is, is that uh, this will also be a time when the Lord shall reign among his righteous saints in Zion. They will stand in holy places and they will be spiritually preserved. And that's one of the reasons why the sealing process is so important in during the uh, the period of the sixth seal. And what I didn't describe from chapter seven is essentially these, this promise of having your spiritual life protected against these kinds of evil influences when even the elect will have a tendency to uh, be at risk. And so uh, I believe that uh, even as the, uh, the bottomless pit, hell, is open and we have this swarm of evil spirits that are given increased power upon the earth, there's going to be an increased power of spiritual light among those who are believers and who are faithful, who are keeping the commandments. It's, it's a, it's a well-known fact that the, the, the plan of salvation requires that there be an opposition in all things. And I tend to believe that that opposition tends to be equal and opposite. It's not the Lord doesn't let that ever get out of balance um, because he wants to protect those who are entitled to his protection. And so as, even as he unleashes these uh, hosts from hell at the time of the first woe, I've got to believe that there is going to be kind of an equal outpouring among his righteous saints. And uh, who knows, this could be the time when uh, we start to see the fulfillment of those prophecies that talk about the saints communing with the uh, hosts of heaven, including the church of the firstborn, um, and uh, the general assembly that were uh, prophesied by Paul in the in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, that could well be the time. I don't know that to be the case, but all I'm saying is all of this bad, really ugly spiritual stuff that happens during the first woe should not leave you without hope. The book of Revelation is ultimately a book of hope for those people who will simply conform their lives to uh, the teachings of Jesus Christ. And as you do so, he will preserve you spiritually. And if you're not preserved physically, which will certainly be the case with some, not everyone will survive some of the uh, things that are going to happen. Um, so your spiritual lives will be protected, protected, and that ultimately is where the real blessing lies. Let, I'm going to skip down to Revelation chapter 9, verse 5, because I want to kind of give you a sense of the time frame for this first woe because it, it sounds really bad but it's actually a relatively short period of time uh, so that's the good news also in this verse it says and to them meaning these locusts that are the symbol for the evil spirits that are coming up out of the bottomless pit he says and to them it was given that they should not kill them kill them meaning people on the earth but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. 
So in this verse, there's a lot of symbolism, again, dealing with the, the locusts that I didn't get into in any detail. But notice it says that these evil spirits don't have the power to kill people, only to torment them. So this is all a spiritual um, kind of thing that's happening that is a prelude to Armageddon and the second woe when, guess what? These locusts are going to turn into uh, really bad scorpion-like horses that have now the power to kill. And so that's, that's the story of uh, Armageddon, is not just the spiritual torment. It gets added to with physical death when, uh, you know, a third of the, the 200,000, 200 million uh, people who are involved in it are going to lose their lives. But here we're just getting tormented. It says specifically for five months. And so the question is asked, well, is that five months something that is symbolic or is it literal or what does it actually mean? And so the interesting thing about this uh, is that the literal lifespan of a locust is actually about 150 days or five months. Uh, that strongly suggests that the five-month period is actually a literal period of time. Now, contrast this with some other views by other scholars that say, well, this five months represents 150 years. <laughs> How do you get to that? Well, because you have five months of 30 days each equals 150 days, and then these days represent symbolically prophetic days of years is how you get to 150. And once people reach that conclusion, they also have fanciful ideas about what point in history this actually came about. Well, again, this is still a period that is still left in the future. Um, I subscribe to the idea that the period of time is probably roughly five months, meaning the actual span of the real locus, and, and there are many other uh, scholars who subscribe to that idea. And even if it's not a literal five months, uh, it's probably still representative of a relatively short period of time. So even though we have this uh, spiritual malignancy during the period of the first woe, is something that's going to be relatively brief. So we can put up with anything for five months, am I right? Okay, um, but the, the bad news is it's only going to last for five months and then things get worse. <laughs> so sorry to be the bearer of bad news again. But once the wicked are ripened in iniquity, this is what's going to lead us into the physical battle of Armageddon. And uh, so that's really what's kind of going on here. And we now go from uh, the first woe that ends in Revelation 9.12 to the start of the second woe, which is physical Armageddon in Revelation 9, starting from Revelation 9.13 through chapter 11, verse 14. Okay, and now I've, I've already talked a little bit about the Battle of Armageddon and the timing of Armageddon when I did podcast number nine on November 26th dealing with the 70 weeks prophecy. So I'm not going to spend any time talking about how we arrive at the Battle of Armageddon lasting seven years and I'll simply refer you back to uh, that uh, particular podcast. But let's take a look at Revelation 9.15 that says, quote, And the four angels were loosed which were prepared for an hour and a day 
and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. Now what this tells you is that there is a fixed start date for when the four angels will start Armageddon. And uh, what we learn is in this verse also is we have the third part of men that will be slayed. Now, in one of the other verses that I'm uh, not going to spend too much time going into is the number of combatants involved in the Battle of Armageddon. Here we learn that a third part of them are going to be killed, and the number of combatants are 200 million. So if you take a third of 200 million, you get 67 million dead. And a lot of people talk about it in this kind of a context and in these numbers. And I'm not saying that that isn't possible, but I will say this. All three of these numbers, meaning the third part, the 200 million combatants uh, that are involved in the war, these are symbolic numbers. They, they have a great deal of symbolism associated with them. So let's not be too hasty to start doing the math and say, oh my gosh, during Armageddon, we're going to have 67 million people who have died. And Well, if you look at the 7, 8 billion people, you kind of get wrapped around the axle on these kinds of things a little bit. And I don't think that that was really John's purpose. He's trying to share with us a concept. Um, and what you have to understand, um, that I don't, won't have time to get into too much, but let me briefly explain why these spiritual numbers uh, are important in a symbolical sense because what it means is the, that we're talking about a grouping of people. This number one-third comes up in lots of contexts. How many sons of perdition rebelled in the premortal existence and followed? Oh, yeah, you're right, one-third. So does that mean one-third precisely? Well, what it means is you have this group that is part of a whole, uh, one part of a whole, and that tends to be what we're talking about here. And it becomes more clear that the one-third that is being talked about in the context of John's verses here are the mortal sons of perdition that commit the unpardonable sin in this life and therefore will receive no forgiveness in this life or in the next. And so you said, well, where do we come up with this idea that the one-third killed during Armageddon are mortal sons of perdition? And keeping in mind that we know that by the time the second coming rolls around, we got to get rid of the mortal sons of perdition, but we also have to get rid of telestial people. Now, even as there is an order of resurrection, as there is an order of creation, there is also an order of destruction. The Lord is very orderly in these kinds of things, and he actually tells us right here in the book of Revelation that he's going to destroy the wicked <clears throat> from the earth in the group to which they belong. And how do we know that? Because what we learn in uh, Revelation 9.15 is we have first the identification of this third part of the men, but then as we go down to Revelation chapter 9 verses 20 and 21, we're going to find out that the celestial worthy people will actually survive this first group of one-third that are killed. And so let me go ahead and uh, we'll put up on the screen for those of you who are watching 
these verses, Revelation 9, 20 through 21, which says, quote, and the rest of the men which were not killed. Okay, so we just got done talking about all the one-third that were killed. Then we have, we get down to the end of John's description of Revelation, and he's talking about those who survived. Okay, so now let me start again. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, including up to... Sorry, I keep interjecting, and I don't get to read the whole verse. But when we talk about these plagues, again, we're talking about the seven trumpet plagues, including now up to and including the sixth trumpet plague equal to the second woe. Okay, so now with that in mind, I promise you this time I'm going to read the entire verses. Quote, and the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. All right, so you'll notice in this verse we have four classes of surviving sinners which correspond with four classes of the telestial people identified in D&C 76 verses 103 through 104. That is murderers, one, sorcerers, fornicators, and thieves. That's four. Now this world number four expresses their universal presence throughout the world. So John is using names uh, or identifiers for this group of evil people, um, but the four is specific to the world number four uh, for that reason. So you can go back and listen to my podcast on uh, October 29th on numerology to get more information about this world number four. But essentially what he's telling us here in very specific terms is he's telling us that sur- celestial people will survive this battle of Armageddon to the very end, okay? And so the people that don't, therefore, have to be the sons of perdition. And so they're the ones that are the part of the one-third. It's, it's not a numerical third. It is a group of people that, uh, that die, and they have to be sons of perdition. And how do we know that? Because here John is telling us, Telestial people will survive. And we're speaking not individually, we're speaking collectively. So sons of perdition as a whole, collectively, will will die. Now, how does how does the Lord accomplish that in the uh, in the Battle of Armageddon? And the short answer is if you go to Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 through 20. What you're going to find there is John's description of how the mortal sons of perdition will be reaped from the earth um, at the time of the second coming. And so John kind of gives us this discussion about this one-third that are killed. And then later on, several chapters later, he actually gives us a description of the reaping that will take place, the harvest, 
the 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 tears and the the things like that um, and how that occurs and so when I get to that that chapter in a moment we'll talk a little bit more about that but again it's one of those things that we're going to have to kind of approach it at the 30,000 foot level because we don't have time to uh, to dig into it all right now but just understand that before we get the sons of perdition or before we get to the telestial people we're first going to destroy the mortal sons of perdition they will die collectively as a group no later than the end of the second woe okay but we still have more time to go right and so what happens is we've got another third woe coming well guess what you telestial people you're going to survive, but then you're going to get yours during the third woe, all right? And we're going to see how that's going to happen. So you have this order of destruction. And just as the resurrection occurs from most righteous down to the least righteous or most wicked, well, the order of destruction is exactly opposite. It occurs from the most wicked and then kind of works its way back up. Okay, so that's kind of how this uh, works uh, with regard to what John is describing in uh, Revelation chapter 9. So now we move on to Revelation chapter 10. Most scholars say that this particular chapter is an interlude because as you come to the end of uh, Revelation 9 and these verses that we just discussed, it sounds like, oh, well, that's the end of, uh, of Armageddon. And uh, the reality of it is, is John's given us an overview of Armageddon, <clears throat> but there's still more details that are going to follow. And so when we get to Revelation 10, and it sounds like the uh, discussion has changed, scholars have a difficult time correlating this to what they just saw at the end of chapter 9 and what they see at the beginning of chapter 11. Therefore, they, well, this is just an interlude. John has stepped back from the uh, storyline. Um, he's taken a break to give us uh, information that sounds more hopeful than what we just went through when we were talking about uh, Armageddon. And again, I disagree with that. Um, you can go back to podcast number four and, and, and get more information about that. But essentially, my conclusion is, is that the information in Revelation 10 is a description of the gathering of saints at Adam on Diamond in Missouri, which occurs at the midpoint of Armageddon, which would be three and a half years. Now, this gathering is specifically foreseen by the prophet Daniel in Daniel chapter 7. And so if you read Daniel's account, and you probably know enough about what's going on in Arm at uh, the gathering of Adam on Diamond to, to know that when you when I tell you that chapter 10 is a description in somewhat symbolic terms about that gathering, you're going to sit there and say, yeah, that sounds like the most natural thing in the world. So let me talk, let me just talk about it in these terms. We know that the gathering at Adam on Diamon is a, is a secret and sacred gathering that will occur prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Um, all of the key holders who have lived upon the earth will be there. So it's going to be mortal people. It'll be resurrected people, probably people who have been translated. Uh, just everybody is going to have the occasion and opportunity to attend 
this gathering if they are at least celestial worthy. So it's not everybody and their dog. Dogs have to stay out. Um, it's going to be celestial people only, and they come. And what happens is the key holders of the earth return their keys back to Christ, who will appear to the gathering and uh, will be coronated, essentially, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and will prepare him for his earthly reign upon the earth and uh, various other things happen. So that's that's Adam and Diamond in a nutshell. So now if you then take a look at how chapter 10 begins, we have these images of uh, the Savior coming down on the earth and it describes his, uh, his glory. And again, I wish I had more time to, to go through this today, but uh, I will circle back and we will cover these verses and this information in great detail. But uh, having told you that chapter 10 describes the gathering at Adam and Diamond, I would simply encourage you to go back and read chapter 10, specifically the first seven verses, and assume that that's what it's talking about. And when you just tie those two things together, then all of a sudden you're, you're going to find yourself reaching the same conclusion I did one day as I was studying. It says, oh my gosh, that's Adam on Diamond. It can't be anything else. It fits the time frame and everything described about what's going on and Jesus's appearing at that time it can't be anything else, all right? And so then you can also, if you want to get more details about uh, Adam and Diamond, go ahead and read uh, Daniel chapter 7, verses 22 through 27 in particular, which also describe the, uh, the Adam and Diamond gathering. And so you read those two things together. Uh, that is verses 1 through 7 in Revelation 10 and those verses from Daniel. And all of a sudden you start connecting the dots and, oh, it seems pretty obvious. Now the last part of chapter 10 is uh, a description of what I call the little book mission that was given to John um, as he had his vision on Patmos Island in 96 AD. Now the prophet Joseph Smith actually was curious about what that's all about. And so in Doctrine and Covenants section 77, he asked the Lord the question, what's going on? And uh, this is what we find, quote, what are we to understand by the little book which was eaten by John as mentioned in the 10th chapter of Revelation? Answer, we are to understand that it was a mission and an ordinance for him to gather the tribes of Israel, close quote. In essence, this was a commission that was given to John when he was receiving his vision on Patmos Island that he was to go and minister among not just the tribes of Israel, not like the, the dispersed uh, tribes that are, we're gathering today as they come into the gospel. We're talking here about the lost 10 tribes of Israel. And this is confirmed in, in multiple different ways. But you ask the question, well, how did we get from the description of Adam and Diamon in the first seven verses of chapter 10 and in the last verses of the same chapter, all of a sudden we're back to John's vision and uh, the mission that he gets is symbolized by this little book. 
that he's supposed to go and do work among the lost 10 tribes of Israel? And the answer to that question lies in the fact that the lost 10 tribes need to be prepared to be participants in that. And you say, let's come again. <laughs> this has a lot of things uh, that uh, have to come into play for us to reach this conclusion. And among them is the idea or the concept that when the lost 10 tribes, uh, after the lost 10 tribes were visited by the Savior around 34 AD, they were, they were together in a group. And uh, as, as I will go in, in detail in other chapters, eventually these 10 tribes were translated um, and they will return from the north in their translated condition at the second coming, but before they do that, they will also come to Adam on Diamond, and John's mission was to prepare them for that eventuality, and that's why the little book mission is specifically mentioned in chapter 10, because chapter 10 is the chapter that is devoted to uh, the gathering at Adam on Diamond. And so you see, when you start to connect these dots a little bit, all of a sudden it makes perfect sense. And none of this is an interlude. John isn't simply departing this chronological account and bringing in extraneous information that doesn't have any application. It's highly relevant to uh, what he uh, was talking about at the midpoint of Armageddon. And so then what happens next after the midpoint, in other words, after the gathering at Adam and Ayaman, what we do is we roll right then into Revelation chapter 11. And at the beginning of chapter 11, in verse 1, it says, quote, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. Now, what John is referring to here in this verse, again, keeping in mind the chronological structure, we're still right after the gathering at Adam and Amon, and now John is told to measure a temple. And in John's terms, the only temple of interest to John, of course, would be the temple in Jerusalem. Um, and so that's the temple that we have to be talking about here. And if John is measuring the temple of God as it exists at the midpoint of Armageddon or the period immediately after the midpoint, there has to be a temple in Jerusalem at that time. And so keep in mind, and, and again, I talk about this in the 70 weeks prophecy in terms of the timing the midpoint of uh, Armageddon is three and a half years before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so what we're now talking about is from that we conclude sometime before the midpoint, the Jews have to return and rebuild the third temple in Jerusalem. And, and from my discussion of the 70 weeks prophecy, you will know also that they will also again offer mosaic type of sacrifices and uh, that the suspension of those sacrifices will occur uh, as the Gentiles surrounding Jerusalem uh, besiege the city and cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease. 
And so that's the time period in which we're talking about. And uh, it is here that John then is measuring this third temple. And it's also the time that we have in Revelation chapter 11, when the two witnesses minister in Jerusalem during what is called the Great Tribulation for three and a half years. And uh, this is when they'll use their sealing power to protect the Jews from being overrun by the, uh, the surrounding Gentiles. That will continue for three and a half years. But when their ministry is complete, they will be martyred and their dead bodies will remain unburied in the streets for three and a half days. The Gentiles will then commit horrible atrocities against the Jews in Jerusalem. Now, we happen to be living in a time when horrible atrocities are occurring over in this very location today. And uh, without getting into uh, any of the details, these types of atrocities are the things that we will see again during the Great Tribulation. And during that three and a half days when the two witnesses are dead and unburied in the streets of Jerusalem. This will be the abomination of desolation that occurs for the last times. This will be the time when the Gentiles will also destroy the third temple. This will also be the time when these atrocities and the second woe will end very abruptly as the two witnesses are resurrected and there is a great earthquake in Jerusalem as recorded in Revelation 11 verses 11 through 14. And so this, uh, we've, I've already talked about the first great earthquake that will occur. This one that occurs when the two witnesses are resurrected is going to be the second great earthquake that will occur. And this still isn't the third one. We still, we won't reach that third earthquake until Revelation chapter 16. But this is the second one as the two witnesses are uh, resurrected and then it will bring an end to this abomination, the abomination of desolation that occurs in Jerusalem. And uh, so that then brings us to Revelation 11 verse 14 where we're now told that the second woe is past and behold the third woe cometh quickly. All right. So now you'll remember when we were looking back at Revelation uh, chapter uh, 8, it warned us about the three woes. And then as we came to the uh, end of the first woe in Revelation 9, 12, it says, one woe is past and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. So John is very consistent in his timekeeping and in tracking these things and telling us specifically when one thing ends and another begins. So now in Revelation 11:14, he's telling us the second woe is past and behold the third woe cometh quickly. And so what I told you already a moment ago is the fact that um, we had the second woe concluding with Armageddon when the sons of perdition, they're all going to be dying here in connection with what's happening here as the two witnesses are killed. So that's where we kind of try and sink everything into a little bit. Now the third woe that uh, John is announcing here is something that then coincides with the seventh and final trumpet angel of the seventh seal. 
And so that's when the, the uh, telestial people are going to meet their maker is during this third woe. But that's still ahead. And John is telling us, hey, this is going to come really fast. That's one of the beauties of Revelation. Even though there's lots of symbolism and signs and some of them are a little bit challenging, the beauty of it is he's giving this, this chronological roadmap that no one can mistake about what's happening when, where, why, and how. And so if you just follow that track and don't assume that, well, this Revelation 10 is just an interlude or chapter 7 is just an interlude. They don't have anything to do with the on-crowing chronology. Once you put them back into the chronology and accept them for what they are, symbolically speaking, the complete picture really comes into focus very readily and we begin to understand everything that has to happen prior to the second coming of uh, Jesus Christ. Now, the last thing that happens in Revelation chapter 11 is found in verses 15 through 19. So he just got done telling us the second woe is past and the third woe cometh quickly. And then he gives us a brief introduction to the third woe, including his description of the second coming. He doesn't give us any details at this point. He simply starts talking about these signs that will be occurring and that he's then going to give us a whole bunch more of detail to come. Now that's kind of where we end our discussion of the uh, 11th chapter of uh, Come Follow Me and that's what we're supposed to cover today. As you can see there's a lot of content and we've only been able to kind of scratch the surface on it but I'm hopeful that with the detail that I've given you at this point, you can actually read these chapters and will have a context for understanding many of the signs, symbols, and details that you can actually look at for yourself. And if you want me to do that for you, I will happily do that in the future, but I just don't have the ability to do it in this one setting. And so we're going to circle back and go verse by verse on these things at a future time. Now, where does that leave us? Well, where that leaves us is uh, as we start the, uh, the next lesson in Come Follow Me, we're going to start out in Revelation chapter 12, which is the one departure from John's chronological account where he does this flashback to the pre-mortal existence and then takes us right back where we here ended. And so here we're ending at the end of chapter 11 with an introduction to the third woe. John is then going to do a flashback in chapter 12 and it's going to continue for three chapters up until the end of chapter 14. And when we get to the end of chapter 14 and we start into Revelation 15, guess what happens? At Revelation 15, it picks up exactly where we left off here at the end of chapter 11. In chapter 11, he gave us an introduction to the third woe. He then does a flashback that brings us right back up to exactly the same point. And then in Revelation 15, he then starts the description and information pertaining to the third woe when all of the telestial survivors that made it through the second woe, now they're going to get theirs. And uh, and that's, that's where we have to leave it. Uh, as I mentioned at the outset, there are a lot of challenging things that you read about, a lot of the uh, the plagues and everything. 
Um, but at the same time, my message of hope to you is that you can recognize the Lord's hand in your life and recognize also that as you keep the commandments and do the things that the Lord has asked you to do, uh, you will be able to recognize his hand in your life and you will be able to know and have confidence that he will bless you despite all the tribulations and difficulties that swirl around you. Go back and read chapter 7 about what you need to do to be able to qualify among those who will be able to stand. You will be among those who found Jesus and uh, he will not forget you and he will bless you throughout this time. And that's my hope and prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.